0: Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. We kicked off the new decade with a lot of social media stuff. Cancel culture and then social media influencers. And it's something the research has really got me... I love it when I, a topic just sits with me and I'm thinking of all these different avenues and all these different things that are happening with it. Right. And it is tough because so many things are bad right now. Right. <laughs> to go on particularly Twitter. But as we said in our episode around social media influencers, there are more female users of Twitter than male. Right. Which got me to thinking, how 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 did that happen, and kind of why did that happen? And I I was I remember the I signed up for Twitter, two thousand seven, didn't tweet until twenty twelve.
1: I think I I somehow ended up using it as almost a chat line for my friends and I, that we just just tag each other constantly (laughs) on roll of conversations. I'm like, why can't we be doing this on the phone? Right. But it was more fun on Twitter. and It is still on records there. And I I don't know. So we were talking about the social media influencers. Emma Chamberlain, who I've never heard of until yesterday, was um, on the cover of Cosmo as being the most popular girl in the world. And she is a YouTube star. Wow. And she actually, as we were talking about the social media influencers, we kind of bypassed her because I don't know anything. I don't know much about YouTubers in general. We didn't Mm -hmm. talk specific cases. Um, But apparently, she did this whole thing about, you know, what it looks like to be in the limelight and just being um, the toxicity of being an influencer. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, this is kind of perfect timing, yeah. but oddly enough that this girl that I've never, an 18-year-old girl has been dubbed this because of her fame in YouTube, and I don't even know right. <laughs> what that would consist of, Right. but I'm sure, I'm guessing, because it just follows suit, that Twitter, she probably has one of the highest numbers of uh, followerships mm-hmm. in that as well. Yeah,
0: and i I haven't opened it yet, but yesterday I got another hey, you're an influencer. Do you want to work with this person? And I'm sure it's just a like media cold call, but <laughs> I got a chuckle out of it again. <laughs>
1: I'm not cool like that. Um, I'm okay with not being cool like that. Yeah, so you know. sure, sure, sure.
0: <laughs> remember, well, speaking of not being cool, remember when you had to explain to me what DM, what that whole thing
1: was? <laughs> that was one of my favorite moments because like, that was one the, one, the first time we really, really hung out. Yeah. And you were ch- like, telling us this innocent story yeah. about this dude just trying to talk to you. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, girl, he slid into your DMs. And you were like, what? What does that mean? What, what does that mean? And he played like, the song. Yeah, <laughs> I had that. to give you the whole hip-hop version of what yeah. it was, as well as, he's trying to get to you. <laughs> and then you're like, he might have a girlfriend. I was like, girl, he's seriously <laughs> sliding in.
0: I'm really glad you did that because right. I really had no idea. You were
1: talking to him. I'm like, why are you responding to him? Just being nice, no. Yeah. No. See, now
0: I know because I, I feel like if you hadn't done that, I would have made that mistake over and over again. You know, I just didn't realize the connotation. Right. That's all.
1: I mean, it really, would be, it, it? You don't know. Like mm-hmm. people have to tell you because for the longest time, I didn't want. Nep- I didn't know what Netflix and Chill meant. And I was like, that I sounds amazing. Either. Let's do that. I thought it was just <laughs> that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Whew. Anyway, I mean, <laughs> Netflix and Chill is not as abrasive as Disney, Disney Plus, Plus and Thrust, Thrust. which especially, I've been asking everyone, and no one knows this phrase. I just want that well, to be said. It is
0: a thing, and it, it, especially since Disney Plus is essentially all of our nostalgic childhood That's movies true. and The Mandalorian. <laughs> oh, <gross. laughs> yep. There's Star Wars and Marvel on there, I guess, right. but still. Mm. Anyway. Anyway, back to Twitter. Twitter, yes. We found a whole classic episode looking into this about whether or not women run Twitter. And we want to share it with you today. We hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello
2: and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we are talking about Twitter episode because there's an anniversary afoot, isn't there, Caroline? That's right. March 2006, the first tweet was sent. That's right. It was uh, Jack Dorsey who sent the first public tweet on March 21st of that year, and it said dun da, da dun. It didn't say that. It said, just setting up my Twitter, but that was when Twitter had no vowels.
3: Right, and I think that tweet served as the prototype for tweets for many years of just like Making a sandwich,
2: driving to work, doing things. Doing things with my sandwich. But we're not just going to talk about what we ate for lunch today on the podcast. Because, well, we haven't had lunch yet at the time of this recording. Uh, We're going to talk about Twitter women on Twitter, how we use it, how we might use it a little bit differently than men. And also women within Twitter or in this case, the lack thereof. But first, let's start with the the creation story. How did it all begin, Caroline? Right. Yeah, really briefly.
3: Um, basically, entrepreneur Noah Glass started what was to be a podcasting platform uh, called Odeo. And he basically had this product that you would call a phone number and it would turn your message into an MP3. Um, One of his earliest investors was former Google employee, Evan Williams, who had just made bank off of selling Blogger to Google. And Evan Williams was quite the shrewd businessman. And basically, so they start working together on this podcast platform. They get an office, they get more employees. And then in fall 2005, Apple announces that, oh, hey, iTunes, by the way, is going to include a podcasting platform in every
2: iPod. And so everybody at Odeo looks at each other and they're like, oh. Uh -oh. Yeah. And by this time, they also had a number of investors who have money riding on this project. And so... Evan Williams is like, hey, guys, uh, we need to think of something new. And so Noah Glass gets together with his coworker, Jack Dorsey. And there's also a developer named Florian Weber who gets involved as well. And they start pitching ideas around. So Jack Dorsey has this concept that really resonates with Glass, and it's all around the idea of status, just those, those short, hey, this is what I'm up to right now, and I want to tell the world about this. And so they present this idea to the rest of the company, and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, y'all start working on this. And what they start working on at that time would eventually become Twitter, but that's Twitter, Twitter, with <laughs> no vowels as it started out. And Noah Glass became very dedicated to this project.
3: Yeah, it was Dorsey's brainchild, but it was, I guess if it's his brainchild, Glass adopted that child and and really, really pushed it and had a lot of passion for it. Then, okay, so in March 2006, like we said, that's the first tweet, uh, Odeo has the strong working Twitter prototype. They're really starting to put a lot of energy into it. In July of that year, it gets covered by TechCrunch for the first time. And August 2006, something interesting happens. A small earthquake hit San Francisco and word spreads via Twitter. And all of a sudden, everybody's looking at each other again going like, oh, oh. I think we have something pretty big on our hands.
2: Yeah, but Ev Williams, old Ev, that's short for uh, Evan, <laughs> he actually ended up buying back all of the original Audio stock for around $5 million. He kind of reacquired this whole company from the other former backers because he, at least on paper, didn't see Twitter as being viable enough to save what was, by this point, the flailing audio. because another podcast platform would in no way be able to compete with iTunes. And this kind of sets off a strange chain of events for noah glass who once twitter gets up and running and in 2007 for instance it has a breakout presence at the south by southwest interactive festival and people by the end of the 2000s are like hey you know what this is the the early adopter types recognize that this could really be something something special but noah glass eventually gets kicked out of the team even though he was the one who came up with the name twitter yeah by flipping through the dictionary yeah hmm. yeah he was th- that actually is an example of the level of his admitted obsession mm-hmm. with this product was that he was going page by page through the dictionary looking for the perfect word for the product right but it, i mean it's
3: it's there like kristen said on paper you know, Williams buys back the stock saying, hey, I feel really bad. You guys invested all this money, but Odeo is just not going to make it. I don't even know if this whole Twitter thing is going to turn into anything. But they, you know, there's all of the speculation that, okay, no, he did know how special it was. He did know it was going to be a big thing, but he just didn't communicate that to investors. But anyway, we might never know unless we break into Evan Williams's brain. But so on September 12th, 2013, Twitter files for an IPO. And on November 7th, 2013, it makes its trading debut, public trading debut.
2: Yeah, and it was valued with that IPO at $14 billion. So in other words, Evan Williams made a whole lot of money. Noah Glass really made nothing because he had already been cut out of the project because apparently he was a little too too uh, obsessive about it. At least that's kind of the line. Um, by now, the uh, what's, what's sometimes termed the creation myth of Twitter has, has kind of been co-opted by Jack Dorsey and this other guy, Biz Stone, who is listed as a co-founder of the company. And why we're getting into the nitty gritty of how Twitter was founded is sort of to offer a snapshot as we did with our episodes on Instagram and Pinterest of this very male-dominated world of Silicon Valley and how it is very cutthroat and competitive and it's all about high risk. And that is starting to change and, and even, you know, was beginning to change as this was happening. Um, but from this origin where it's all guys, for the most part, working on this thing, women now, in a way, run Twitter yeah. If, you're ta- if we're talking about who's tweeting.
3: Right. It is it is women. And we do make up a bulk of social media users. However, we hold the keys to so few actual social media companies. Um, we were looking at into sort of the makeup of these companies and none of the leading social networks is run by a woman or counts a significant number of women among its top. Management or board of directors and a lot of people are saying that this is a huge Problem because according to scholar Vivek Wadhwa um, This basically shows that these companies don't really understand their base their whole user base That Silicon Valley is a boys club that they need more diversity on their boards for the sake of for their own sake for the sake of their longevity and but Twitter hopefully maybe is getting with the program
2: not really. I mean, <laughs> just for for a rundown of this the female leadership in the major social medias out there. First of all, you have Facebook with, of course, COO Sheryl Sandberg, and it has two women, including Sandberg, on its eight-member board. With LinkedIn, three of its top nine managers are women. It has one woman on its seven-member board. Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, was founded by two men, as we talked about in that episode. And Tumblr, also founded by a dude, now owned by Yahoo, which is run by Marissa Meyer. So there's that. And then we have a Pinterest founded by three guys. And Twitter is really doesn't do much better at all. When it was up for its IPO, there was this story in the New York Times that kind of opened up this conversation about how, hey, yeah, Twitter, uh, you're bored. Uh, it's all men. And you really have very few women in leadership. What's going on with that? But now... Twitter has one woman on its eight-member board of directors. Yeah,
3: back in December of 2013, they named Marjorie Scardino uh, to its board of directors. She's the former chief executive of Pearson, which is a British publishing and education company, which it sounds like she completely turned that ship around and and got that all buttoned down. But uh, she serves on the company's audit committee, and her term expires this year, 2014, at their annual meeting of stockholders. So I guess we'll see then whether Twitter invites more women to persist-
2: participate. Well, and you have to wonder whether or not they even brought on Scardino simply because they were under duress in a way. Oh, yeah. Because so many people, once the New York Times reported on it, There were a lot of people who dogpiled on this saying, hey, yeah, Twitter, what is going on? You have to hire or at least get more women on your board. I mean, we should mention that Chloe Sladden is their director of media partnership and Katie Jacob Stanton is their director of international strategy. So you do have some women in leadership. And uh, there was a Vogue article that I ran across, which Whenever you see articles about women in tech in Vogue, it is pretty much focused on how they're very well-dressed since it is Vogue. But this quote uh, from Jacob Weisberg's piece jumped out to me. It says, Twitter is more humanistic than other tech startups, less defined by introverted math majors and engineers, and perhaps as a result friendlier to women who were well-represented at all the meetings I attended. Hmm. Which I don't really know what Jacob Weisberg considers friendlier to women. Um, but, and, and, and maybe there were lots of women in the meetings he attended because his piece was about women at Twitter, right. but, but it's not like they're, they, they certainly aren't stepping out in leaps and bounds ahead of these other big sure. companies.
3: Well, that author who I cited a minute ago, uh, Vivek Wadwa, he pointed out that, look, they're no longer a bunch of geeks selling to fellow geeks as was the case when the tech industry was in its infancy. And so, to completely scoot on over to look at the users, I mean, who are the people that Twitter is talking to or pitching to, and who who are they appealing to? Um, basically, uh, younger, urban, and non-white adults. Yeah, is is the way that Twitter users skew.
2: Yeah, and it's important too that when you look at the age breakdown of Twitter, that it is it does skew young. Uh, 18 to 29 is a sweet spot for them because more and more young folk are moving away from Facebook, which still kind of dominates the social media landscape. But when it comes to Silicon Valley, I mean, it's all about looking forward and you need to look at where the younger people are going Mm -hmm. and they're on Twitter. And it's also significant too that according to data collected by the Pew Internet Project, women do edge out men on Twitter. It's not by a huge margin. 18% 18% of female Internet users are on Twitter compared to 17% of male Internet users. But nevertheless, the fact that we're, we're still edging them out by a little bit shows some blindness in terms of, you know, l- like you said, the, the, uh, the point that Wadwa brings up of, hey, do you even know your user base? Mm-hmm.
3: Right. And when we look at the gender breakdown of that user base, this is coming from a report from October 2012. Women tweet more than men. And while we tend to tweet about family and fashion, men tend to tweet about tech and sports. And just for some trivia, we like purple backgrounds while men prefer dark ones. Yeah. What's
2: up with that?
3: It's an interesting report. Purple backgrounds. minus blue. I don't know what. I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't really know what that means. <laughs> I don't either.
3: But it was imp- apparently important enough to include in here. Purple, y'all. Tweet it. And we'll talk a little bit more about the whole Twitter and gender issue when we come back from a quick
2: break. And now back to the show. Now, speaking about maybe the differences in how men and women use Twitter, there's been some sociolinguistic research into our gendered speech patterns on Twitter, which it's actually a little more challenging than you might think because Twitter handles aren't necessarily uh, your gendered name. Right. You might just be inanimate object or a series of consonants.
3: Correct. Like my boyfriend is a food item.
2: Yeah. But, so. not, a, but
3: not a gendered food item. It, oh. could, it could be anything.
2: Yeah, so like cauliflower, six one two. Who knows what that might be? Um, but what they've done is sort of uh, reverse engineered it by looking at the content of the tweets. They can then they some of, some researchers, I think actually at Georgia Tech, have figured out an algorithm for determining the gender of a Twitter user, which is really important. For Twitter in terms of advertising because advertisers are like, well, how do I target cauliflower 6425 (laughs) if I don't know what cauliflower might like? Cauliflower? (laughs) Yeah, basically just sell them cauliflower, (laughs) clearly. Um, But there was one study that jumped out at us with all of this uh, gender and language and Twitter research. Which found that women tend to use more pronouns and emotion terms like sad, love, and glad. Whereas, oh, and we also use more things like LOL, OMG, abbreviations that are associated with online discourse mm-hmm. in more formal terms. And we also rate highly on the use of emoticons and what are called back channel sounds, which I got a kick out of. These are back channel sounds, are things like, ah, huh, Hmm. Ugh. Mine, the
3: one that I use all the time is Blarg. Yeah. Um. And so let me tell you, I've said that forever. And like, let me tell you how special it was when I started watching 30 Rock long ago. And she says Blarg. I was like, we are soulmates. It's true. Um. But so, OK, so women are, are using more emotion terms and, and abbreviations and things like that. Men tend to have higher frequencies of standard dictionary words, whatever those are. Uh, Numbers, proper nouns, particularly sports team names, and taboo words.
2: Yeah, and they looked at over, these researchers looked at 9 million tweets, I think, which sounds exhausting. And they found these gendered patterns, but they also found some statistical outliers where if you have... Um, a, a female user who's tweeting a bunch about sports teams and maybe using more standard dictionary terms, in other words, using more male patterns of tweet speech, mm-hmm. then they tend to have more male followers or follow more men and vice versa for men who use more female gendered speech patterns. It's kind of interesting how you see those um you see us borrowing from each other, but also right. how that reflects in who you follow. Because if you're
3: not the Wall Street Journal or, or some other, you know, formal media outlet, you're not necessarily going to use complete sentences, complete capitalization. You're probably going to abbreviate things. But I will say, not to make myself sound like I'm, like, better than anybody out there, but, like, I don't like to rely on abbreviations on Twitter. I know that I only have 140 characters, but I am determined to make my complete sentence fit.
2: Well, Caroline, uh, if you follow... At Mom Stuff Podcast, <laughs> you might notice that its tweets are typically standard dictionary terms. That's right. We are a very masculine podcast. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, no, I agree. I, uh, I think it's because you and I are both writerly grammar mm-hmm. nerds. Right. And I prefer to not rely on abbreviation either, unless it is funny. If it improves the comedic effect or if I absolutely right. can't fit something in, then I'll abbreviate. But, but yeah, it's funny
3: like being on Twitter and seeing the things that people abbreviate, like the word about or something that I'm like, oh, wow, I just never would have thought to abbreviate that. And yet I still get the meaning.
2: That's a common one that mm-hmm. I'll that I'll abbreviate. That doesn't yeah. feel as bad yeah. to abbreviate about or BTW. Right. I'll do that. But I have also adopted tweet speech in my own verbal speech, which is something I... It's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. Because
3: you start doing something ironically uh, and to get laughs and then it like infiltrates your, infiltrates your actual
2: speech. I say BTW out loud and it is not ironic. <laughs> and I'm not ashamed to say it. It's just what happens when you live on the internet. No, and sometimes. that was, I mean, that
3: was the, the trouble that I got into with finger guns for a while. Because I was like ironically being like, right at you, babe. And then it Caroline just, is
2: finger gunning me right now. And, by no
3: way. and like not winking, just kind of like blinking hard at her. And then I realized that it was starting to... Like, I would be having a conversation at work, let's say. And I'd be like, yep, that's right. And I'd finger gun the person. I'm like, no, this is awful. And so I had to I had to consciously stop But Okay, well, so now that I've taken us down that path... And what? all of your bosses
2: thought you were awkwardly hitting on them. <laughs> um, so even though women are talking... We are talking differently on Twitter, but we are, all in all, talking more mm-hmm. on Twitter. We tweet more. But... Here's an interesting pattern. We might be talking more, but we get retweeted less often. Right. And this is there
3: was a tool that researchers used to figure this out. It's called the TweQ, which is basically Twitter's equality quotient thingamabob. But anywho, they found that men are retweeted almost twice as often as women, with close to sixty-three percent of all retweets those of male users. And so I was reading this and I immediately was like, I have to know what my score is because I don't tweet a ton. And I don't, I definitely don't retweet a ton. So I was like, what, what, what does mine say about me? And so with great trepidation, I typed my handle into the little machine and it told me that my tweak score was pretty freaking dismal that I tend to mostly retweet men. And then I thought about it after my initial shock, I'm, I'm really mainly retweeting like news outlets or, you know, big groups like that. I, I'm not typically retweeting an individual, so I don't take that for whatever
2: it's worth. Well, perhaps that's social media reflection of certain kinds of media gender gaps that you see. For instance, opinion columnist tend to be men. Mm -hmm. They usually almost always skew male. Even um, there was a study a a while ago. uh, NPR had an ombudsman come in to analyze the gender of sources that they cited in stories. Tended to be men. Not because NPR is sexist, but usually because men just might, you know, want to talk more than women do, which is kind of surprising. Um, So it's not just that men are saying, "Uh, well, I guess you could say, well, men are just saying more important things than women are on Twitter. Or is it that maybe m- more mouthpieces
3: for certain organizations are male? But also, I mean, I, f- I feel like on the podcast before we've touched on the whole idea of there being a bias in terms of people trusting male voices more than female ones. So it seems to me like there's a lot of interesting parts at work here.
2: Yeah, I would be curious to dig into that data and see beyond gender, what are the topics that get mm-hmm. most retweeted? Because it's probably going to be news items, like in your case, uh, politics, business, tech, mm-hmm. maybe sports, these things that do tend to have more male authorship. Right, but if you think about it, so like let's say
3: uh, Slate has an article that's uh, something gender-related, something about women in the workplace, let's say, and let's say that I retweet that. Well, who's the, you know, that's about women, but is it being attributed to a gender? I, I don't know. Maybe we need to get those Georgia Tech scientists on the
2: podcast. It's true. Uh, speaking of this retweet issue, though, before we even started researching for this episode, a few weeks ago, I read this column on the site Medium by this guy named Anil Dash, who is a big tech guy, has a big Twitter following, and he went for a year without retweeting men because he had, like you, Caroline, a dismal Twitter equality quotient score. And he just wanted to see how his Twitter feed and how his Twitter habits might change if he only retweeted women. And he found that it really changed nothing other than every now and then he would have to be a little bit more concerted mm-hmm. in figuring out you know who he was retweeting. So it took a little bit more time every now and then. But he said that overall the the dialogues that were coming into his feed as a result of the retweets were sometimes more, uh, were sometimes richer Mm -hmm. um, because he was just exposed to conversations, female conversations that he wouldn't have normally been exposed to because he was kind of just staying in, in the male zone. Right. Well,
3: I mean, speaking of female conversations, one thing that I've noticed, you know, like
2: I said, I'm, I mean, I, geez, I just got on Twitter like last year. I'm, 30, you know, well, like, and I'm sure that there are so many listeners right now who are saying Twitter Schmitter. <laughs> not a, I mean, Twitter is it's it's still kind of we should start Schmitter
3: for people who don't care about social media
2: for people who don't care about Twitter. That's where you can tweet about how much you dislike Twitter. Come over to Sh- Schwitter.
3: But um, no, I was something I've noticed as not being the most active social media participant, the most active Uh, blog participant, is that Twitter, a lot of social media, but it seems like Twitter in particular, is sort of this cradle of negativity and black holes for really distressing conversations. And, I mean, you know, we are who we are, so we need to talk about feminism, obviously, in this little microcosm of a universe And um, a lot of people have gotten into arguments about feminism on Twitter and then arguments about those arguments and then blogged about it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, a lot of this started with um, a piece written by Michelle Goldberg for The Nation called Twitter's Toxic Feminism Wars. And when it first popped up in my feed, I immediately wanted to read it because Mm -hmm. I knew exactly just from the headline what it was going to be about. Right. Because there is a lot of infighting that happens within feminist circles on Twitter which some of some of which can be very productive we did an entire episode all around the hashtag solidarity is for white women, mm-hmm. and the idea of you know being more aware of white privilege and intersectionality within feminism, and how important it is to always keep diversity in mind, and realize that my experience and the the lens that I am looking through is going to be different than your experience. Caroline is going to be different from a trans woman's experience, etc. Um, but it can also quickly dissolve these. Twitter wars as some people call them mm-hmm. into just meanness.
3: Yeah lots of sniping at each other and and part of the beauty of Twitter which is you get to say these things, have these quick hits, make your point quickly, link to something and get a million people to look at it. That's the beauty of Twitter but it's also the downfall of a lot of these conversations because if I'm trying to have a serious conversation with you about feminism Twitter just does not seem like the best venue for it and, and it seems like you know, the way that when we were 12 years old and we were on AOL Instant Messenger and I might say something to you, Kristen, and you might take it as, like, really abrupt. And I'm like, no, I didn't mean it like that. It's the same thing for text messages and now it's the same thing for Twitter. And I feel like if you're trying to have a productive conversation, you might say something, you might instigate something accidentally, or you
2: might instigate something on purpose. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing about this whole conversation about women in Twitter is that we need to recognize the potential power in a good way that we have by so many of us being on there, but also that hackneyed phrase about great power and great responsibility. And maybe once these conversations start popping up, instead of talking at someone, if it's possible to do this on Twitter, to actually talk to someone.
3: And one one point that I feel like a couple people have made that I find interesting is just the idea about like protecting some ideal feminism like like you're not you're not a good enough feminist because you're fill in the blank or no you're not a good enough feminist you're too exclusive or you're too inclusive or you're not you know I just feel like Twitter <laughs> I feel like Twitter in my very like limited experience i feel like twitter is is almost detrimental to some of these conversations because it leads a lot of women of various backgrounds to feel like they can't participate in conversations
2: right because the great part about twitter is that you can spread the word so quickly about Mm -hmm. something i mean think about how with the twitter origin story how they knew they were onto something special partially when The word, when word of that San Francisco earthquake was able to spread as quickly as it did through this new tool. And that's part of the power of being able to have these massive conversations on this platform is that it is so real time and it is legitimately like back and forth as though you were having a face to face conversation. But there's also that crowd effect of, you know, the dogpiling that can happen on there, and I don't know. I mean, like thinking about how Twitter is off also a site for some people where there's massive cyberbullying that goes on, and there's a whole lot of trolling. And if you are a woman on the internet, Twitter can be a very unfriendly place, just by virtue of attracting people who are who want to find you and like tell you all sorts of horrible things. Mm-hmm. That it's disheartening when even among your so-called allies you're engaging in fights perhaps rather than you know progressing forward does that make sense yeah and we shouldn't say that you know that women only use twitter for bad we're not just talking about our families fashion and how you're a bad feminist there are lots of you know powerful Initiatives that have happened, Uh, misrepresentation off the top of my head is one organization that has done a great job utilizing the power of its hashtag not buying it. Right. To call out uh, sexist products or movies or things like that to -hmm. to spread awareness and actually get companies to remove certain things.
3: Well, that Twitter hashtag not buying it caught on so strongly that they now have an app. Right. Where you can take pictures of something while you're out at the grocery store or whatever and hashtag not buying it. And then you can choose to share it on various social media.
2: Yeah. And um, Hollaback is an organization um, that it's an anti-street harassment organization that often uses Twitter in a way for you know, women to share their experiences or share resources, there's a lot of good that can happen. I think it's just the nature of the internet, though, that the negative side gets so much more spotlight sometimes than the positive side.
3: Well, so much more spotlight, but also so many, like you said, so many more people piling on to it. You know, it's, it's you know, fights attract almost.
2: Yeah. I mean, and for better or worse, and uh, so many times for worse, the digital world is often a realm of extremes where you only attract people who really, really love you and want to tell you how much they love you or people who really, really hate you and tell you how much they hate you. Yeah. Not that we've ever noticed that in YouTube comments or anything like that. Um,
3: Well, I mean, 20, there's like 25% or 29% of Twitter users never tweet.
2: Yeah, there are lots of there are lots of lurkers. Uh, at Kristen Conger is not a super active Twitter account. I got to mm-hmm. go through spurts, but y- you can kind of make it whatever you want. Mm-hmm. It can be like solely a news aggregator or a way that you talk to your friends around the world or just a way. I know some people who only follow comedians. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's what it's kind of whatever you want it to be.
3: Right. But the fact that it is something that can be an incubator for movements like Solidarity is for White Women, for Hollaback, for not buying it. I mean, I I think that's a valuable tool. I do. I do feel sad about the state of some of the feminist conversations or so-called feminist conversations that happen on Twitter. I think that you know, as as in any venue, not just Twitter, but in real life, IRL or on Facebook or wherever, you know, I, I think that sometimes there is too much of a focus on you're doing feminism wrong instead of I'm supporting
2: my fellow women. Right. But what would you say after reading all of this about Twitter from the corporate end of it, where clearly we do need more women in leadership? And this is not just a knee-jerk parody thing. I mean, there are... So many studies that we can cite talking about how more women in top management positions typically leads to more returns for those investors. Um, And simply the issue of, you know, wanting to know your user base. So why don't you have more women in key positions of power? Um, But knowing what you know about Twitter, Caroline, what would you say to people who think that it's a frivolous conversation. People who are t- uh, wa- who do want to join Schmitter <laughs> or Schwitter. Sorry, not Schmitter.
3: <laughs> um, I, I see why you would want to join Schwitter. It's very important to make sure we get the W sound in there. Yeah, but, Schwitter. Schwitter. But like you said, I mean, Twitter is what you make it. You can follow a lot of like really like yelling people. Or just comedians or just whoever. Um, But I think that Twitter can be super productive as a way to raise awareness for for important things if that's how you so choose to use it.
2: And I would argue that it's more of the future. If you want to be on the cusp, go where the young folk are. And guess what? Olds, it's not Facebook. And I I count myself among the olds at this point.
3: Well, yeah, and I, I would reckon, I would reckon that Twitter is gaining in popularity among younger younger people because all of our parents and grandparents are on Facebook now. Yeah. And also Facebook's culture is to lock it down, have it private. Only your 1,500 friends can see what you write, whereas Twitter is very much more of an open conversation, maybe a social tool, maybe an organizational tool. You're not going to try to get, well, you can have a Facebook event, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, Twitter is very much a different and for a different purpose than Facebook.
2: Yeah, I mean, just I'm almost sad and I'm sure our audience is not sad <laughs> that we didn't go into looking at younger groups on Twitter and for I'm thinking specifically of Justin Bieber fans and One Direction fans and just the massive like trends that they can set on Twitter in one day just with their own hashtags that they yeah. start in support of their pop crushes. I mean, that's the thing about Twitter. It's like it's making celebrity access even more open than ever before. Sure. So, I mean, whether you like it or not, I think Twitter is absolutely influencing our culture. And since it is the anniversary of the first tweet or around the anniversary of the first tweet, we just wanted to take a moment and look at how women play on this social media landscape
3: yeah so i would love to hear from listeners have you gotten into productive conversations or unproductive conversations whether about feminism or not has has twitter been a helpful tool for you or have you run up against a lot of negativity
2: hey and be sure to follow us or tweet us at mom stuff podcast and if you want to follow me i'm at Kristen conger and caroline you are at the caroline Irv. so tweet us hashtag us Retweet us. You know, all of those Twitter things that you can do. And before we sign off, we've got a couple of letters to share with you right now. Well, I've got an email here from Denver about our episode, In The Mysterious Case of the Convulsing Cheerleaders. Denver writes, Love the podcast, longtime listener. I usually listen when I'm on my way to work or running. As I was recently listening to your podcast, The Mysterious Case of Convulsing Cheerleaders, I couldn't help but think of the classic Joss Whedon tale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the musical from, I think it was the sixth season. It was called Once More with Feeling. I wasn't a Buffy devotee, but did thoroughly enjoy the self-effacing humor of the musical. The story is that people mysteriously start bursting into song and dance in the streets, and Team Buffy is trying to figure out what is causing it. The association isn't hurt by the fact that Buffy herself was a cheerleader. Oh my gosh, Carolyn. I don't know if Joss Wheaton was aware of the history behind mass hysteria, but it fits in nicely. And as you were going through the theories explaining mass hysteria, one song in particular came to mind called I've Got a Theory. I could just see you both exchanging researched ideas on why this <laughs> happens and singing to each other while doing so. <laughs> that's so weird because that's how we do it. I know. Yeah. yeah, we usually prep with a song and dance. An old soft shoe tap routine. God, I wish. <laughs> so
3: I have a letter here from Amy. She says, uh, the podcast about mass hysteria was very interesting to me. As soon as I saw the title, I immediately thought about my high school. When I was in 11th grade, a bunch of the cheerleaders in my class started having weird arm twitches. I remember girls walking around with twitching arms and getting up in the middle of class in tears to run to the nurse when it started up. I always thought they were faking it for attention, but after hearing this, I believed that it was really genuine mass hysteria. The school authorities made them stop practicing for a while because they thought they were working too hard to win at nationals. This pretty much made it worse because it made them stressed out about competition. Anyway, love the show, and I think you both are fun to listen to. And Amy, you're fun to read
2: stuff from. So thank you. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuffADiscovery.com is our email address. And if you want to find us on social, or if you want to find all of our podcasts, blogs, and videos, you can head right on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other
1: topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.